Good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you're joining us in cafe this morning or by way of audio or video podcast, welcome to you. God bless you. This is Woodburn Baptist Church, and we're glad you have found us. Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. It's Palm Sunday, beautiful spring day. It's been a really active and hectic week. If you've been following the news, there's probably news you missed. You probably ought to go back and and see what all happened this week. Among the things that you may have missed is Charo was voted off of Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. Oh. Um, how many of you know who Charo is? I mean, like before Dancing with the Stars, how many of you remember Charo? Yeah, you're aging yourself, Papa, Mama. Yeah, I remember Charo from back in the day. She really used to be famous, and she didn't used to be so weird. Or maybe she was, maybe we were all weird in the 70s. I, I, I don't know. But do you remember Charo back in the day? She started out as what? A very accomplished flamenco guitar player. She played guitar. And and in that role, she was a serious performer, a serious musician. And then one way or the other, I guess uh, the the guitar thing sort of played out. So she became something else, this kind of hoochie-coochie, you know, all, all, all the time. And she did that for like, you know, all through the 70s. She, you know, she was on the, she was on the Flying Nun. Do y'all remember that? Like, I mean, what? She was on the Flying Nun and then she was on like Fantasy Island, the plane. I mean, she was on Fantasy Island and then she was like, she hoochie-coochied all over the love boat, you know, several different special guest appearances. Um, she'd been gone for a long time and, and I was good with that. You know, I, I really was. Weren't you? Because in these years, in these 30 years that have passed, she's had a lot of plastic surgery. She's had her nose reduced. And apparently in the process, her nostrils sewed shut. I mean, her nose, uh, she's, you know, like my grandma's age. uh, And she's still, you know, trying to do, you know, I don't even need that, you know, out of her. They say that everyone has 15 minutes of fame. What does that mean? 15 minutes of fame. That means that whether you really appreciate it or not, people are fickle. And you'll be famous for now, but then we'll be done with you. I mean, if you uh, are brokenhearted about Charo being off of Dancing with the Stars, never fear, Mr. T is still on. You know, and Nancy Kerrigan, on what planet are these people still stars? You understand? 15 minutes, you get 15 minutes and then it's over. But apparently for some people, it's very, very difficult to let go of, you know, fame. Uh, it's true for all of us, and I recognize it for myself. Right now, I am probably at, at, at the height or maybe just over the hill in my own ministry. I, I love Woodburn. I think you guys love me for now. But I know, I know the day is coming. It's coming probably, what, 15 years, 20 years? I mean, it's going to happen. Uh, at that point, Maddie Hartsock will lean over to her husband, Elliot, and say, <laughs> and she'll say, don't you think it's about time Pastor Tim retired? Don't you think it's about time Pastor Tim? I mean, it's coming. It's coming. I will be Charo in their world, you know, or Mr. T. Uh, I will be finished and done with because, like I say, you get about 15 minutes uh, and, and, and then it's over. People move on. People are fickle. The same crowd that adores you today will crucify you tomorrow, which brings us to Palm Sunday. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. In this particular day, Jesus is riding high on the praises of the people. The praises of the people will be short-lived. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Let's read together. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus sent two of them on ahead saying, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the son of David, Hosanna. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's Jesus riding on a donkey's colt. One of the interesting things about our new president is the fact that he comes from wealth. Now, most of the time when we've elected men into the, into the office of presidency in the United States, they have been men of more humble uh, background, or at least uh, uh, they didn't already live in a house bigger than the White House. You, you understand? It's been difficult for Trump to leave Trump Tower because who wants to leave Trump Tower? I mean, you understand? The White House is an old house. It's a nice place, but I'm not sure it compares to what Trump has known. And, and one of those things that's been hard for him to give up was his private jet. Apparently, Trump's private jet was somewhere beyond what we're used to with Air Force One. Now, that's hard for most of us to, to even grasp because Air Force One is, is one of the nicest airliners that flies in the sky. You understand that? But, but, but Trump's previous plane had like gold-plated seat belt, you know, seat belt buckles. Like, like, like those were gold. The plane he's flying around now is no junky helicopter. Understand, Air Force One is amazing, and they've completely renovated it just for him. Air Force One itself has a dining room that seats 100. What? Yeah, it seats, they can feed 100 people. That's five chefs, five chefs. They can feed people. There's a replica of the Oval Office that's toward the nose of the plane where, where the president can continue to work. Can you even believe that? There is a fully operational surgical suite just in case. An outfitted pharmacy. I mean, everything the president could possibly need. The couches fold out into very, very comfortable beds and all of the beds have these blankets that are blazing with the presidential seal. Yeah, a lot like our house, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. When Air Force One flies, there are other airplanes that fly alongside of it. They have his cars. He flies with his cars. So there's the presidential limousine in one plane and then the decoy presidential limousine in another plane because there are always two. You know that just to confuse people. It's just absolutely phenomenal the way he flies. And understand, we want it to be that way because the way that the president travels says something about the importance of the man, his status, his power, also something about the dignity of the office. You understand that? So when the president flies or drives or otherwise travels, he does so in style in order to signify his status, his importance. So what does that say about Jesus 
Riding on, did I say, a donkey? Yeah, a, a, a donkey. And there is nothing flashy, nothing special about the donkey. The donkey has its coat. And actually, if, if you notice carefully, Jesus rides on the coat. Jesus rides on the animal that's never even been ridden. Do you understand that? The disciples throw their coats over the back of the donkey's colt, and Jesus rides. I mean, this is not typically the way the king of the universe would travel. It's not what we would expect, but it says something about the way this man is going to fulfill his destiny. It says something about Jesus's office. It says something about Jesus himself. First off, notice his accommodations. Notice how he comes into town. It shows you that Jesus is in full control. What does Jesus say? Go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you'll see a donkey tied there. Its colt will be beside it. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord's need them. Do you understand? Someone has orchestrated this entire procession, this entire entrance. Who do you think's in control here? Jesus is in full control. Now, that's important because, as you know, this is the beginning of the very final week in Jesus' life. So what begins on Palm Sunday with this amazing procession of praise is going to end on Good Friday with Jesus being crucified on the cross. And some people presume that there must be something accidental about that. That there's no way that that Jesus can ride into town on Sunday with all of this praise and then die on on Friday. There must be an accident. You know, Jesus somehow is caught up. He's just ground in the gears of history or caught up in in all of the turmoil of of the government, something like that. But but, but this must be a horrible tragedy, an accident that that Jesus never saw or Jesus never intended. But no, you got to pay attention to the scripture here. Jesus is in full control. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly who he will meet there. He knows exactly what's going to unfold this week. Jesus is in full control. That means that it's not that people are going to take his life away from him. Jesus lays his life down. Jesus does this himself. This is voluntary. Remember how we started this entire series, Man of Sorrows. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Remember, he chose the cross when he was still in the, in the glories of heaven. He emptied himself of all of that. He's already made the decision that he will come and, and die for us. So Jesus is in full control. You must not miss that. You must not miss that, which means Jesus chooses how he's going to ride into town. He chooses how he will present himself to the people of Jerusalem. And he chooses to ride in on a donkey. Y'all seen donkeys? I got a donkey, two donkeys actually live behind my house. They belong to my dad. My dad got them secondhand from L.P. McRoy. So these are like used donkeys. These are used donkeys. I don't know exactly why dad got him. I think LP must be a really good donkey salesman. And I think LP told dad that these donkeys will protect your cattle herd. They don't. They don't. They just stand behind my house like in the morning when I'm trying to sleep. They stand by my house and go, have you heard it? Yeah. It's not the sweet little hee-haw like in the cartoons. It's just, it's like somebody laying on a car horn, you know, a donkey. Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey. Now, on the one hand, this choice is prophesied in Scripture. Tell the people of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey. 
So two things there, two things that you see on Jesus' entrance. And, and in some ways, they don't even seem to go together. But Jesus embodies this ultimate kingship. Look, people of Jerusalem, the scripture says, your king is coming to you. He's riding toward you. He's your king. This is the king you've been waiting for. This is the king you've been praying for. This is the king who's going to set you free. This is not just an ordinary king, not an ordinary sovereign like any other earthly ruler. This is God in the flesh. This is the king of the universe. This is the maker of heaven and earth. Look, your king is coming. It's, It's amazing. But he's coming to you in ultimate humility. There's no Air Force One. There's no squadron of secret service agents. There's no airplanes. There's nothing like that. There's a donkey. There's a donkey. He's riding in like a redneck farmer. He's riding in like nobody special. He's riding in like nobody at all. How do you hold this together? This ultimate kingship and ultimate humility. It says something about his gentleness. It says something about his tenderness. It says something about the kind of king he's going to be. It's not going to be about flash. It's not going to be anything at all that's going to draw you to him as far as attraction or power. It comes in humility. On this particular day, the people welcome him. It's actually amazing, absolutely amazing. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, verse 8 says. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yeah, it's an interesting word, a strange word. It means save us. So they gather around Jesus, this amazing parade, a spontaneous kind of parade. And the people begin to throw their coats in the road to make a path. It's like a red carpet entrance for the donkey, for, for, the, for the King Jesus. And the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It, it's absolutely beautiful. Hosanna means save us. So they're greeting him now as a king. They're greeting him as the coming savior, as a man of power, as a man of victory. They're coming to them. He's coming to them as, as, as a humble king. They're receiving him as, as their only hope. Save us. Save us. Now, the scripture says that Jerusalem on that particular day was already like a ticking time bomb. The city was in uproar, and, and that's true. We know this from other historical sources. We know that Jerusalem was a very, very dangerous and very difficult city politically. We know that in, in the past five years prior to when Jesus comes into town this day, for the previous five years, there have been 32 different violent revolts, rebellions in the city of Jerusalem, 32 So that's about, what, six a year? Something like that. I mean, can you even imagine six violent uprisings in a major U.S. city like like Nashville or Seattle or or, or Pittsburgh, something like that? I mean, this is what we're talking about. A, A city that for years has been prone to unrest, prone to violent outbursts, and you better believe that the government's watching. You better believe that the Jewish leaders want to make sure that that nothing nothing blows up here. But it starts looking like something's going to blow up. People say that on this particular day with the pilgrims coming into town for the, for the holiday for Passover, there could be something like 5 million people in the city of Jerusalem. 
Five million people. And now Jesus rolls into town. Hosanna, save us, they say. Save us. What do you think they mean by that? Save us. Do they recognize that he's the Savior? Do they recognize uh, as when John the baptizer pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Is that what they mean? Is that what they're thinking? Probably not. Save us. They they see him as the one who can make a difference for their lives, but, but they don't really understand what, what he's come to do. They don't understand the way in which he plans to save them. He's going to save them, but not like they think. Some of the people just probably think that he is the, the kind of man who can feed them, who can take care of their physical needs. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, the scripture says that they wanted to make him king on the spot. They wanted to make him king because they recognized that a king like that, someone who had the power to put a chicken in every pot, a loaf of bread in every hungry mouth, that's a man of power. That's the kind of man we want leading us, a man who can provide for our physical needs. I mean, after he fed the 5,000, they almost made him a king by force. He, he, He didn't want that. He refused that then. He'll refuse it now. He's not going to be that kind of king. But when some people say, save us, save us, that's what they want. They want physical needs taken care of. I mean, when Jesus in his ministry, he would heal the cripple. He would heal the, the blind man. I mean, Jesus always had this way of finding the people in miserable circumstances and turning their life around. So maybe some people still expect that, that Jesus is the one who can take their situation and turn it around. He can change their life like that. He can heal anything broken inside them. He can give them eyes that see and legs that walk. So maybe that's what they want. Just a man, a leader who can turn the situation around, who can improve the quality of their lives. So they say, save us, save us. They're just simply asking him to, to make their lives better, to, to change their lives, to turn things around for good. Obviously, some people just really wanted an earthly king. I mean, the Roman empires standing over Jerusalem with its heavy, heavy boot. And, and so therefore, the people long for freedom and, and justice. They just want a brave leader who will come and light the fire that will burn for the freedom and, and justice of, of, of the people of Israel. I and mean, they just want somebody who will, who will defeat Rome and drive out the Roman army. I mean, that's all they want. I mean, save us, they say. Understand, the, the word Hosanna, it's, it, it means save us. And I insist, they're shouting the right word. He's come to save. They shout the right word, but they shout it for all the wrong reasons. Their idea of being saved and Jesus' idea of saving them are not necessarily the same thing. They don't really want what they're asking for, what Jesus is going to bring and when they realize that, they're going to be gone. Now, the crowd adores him today. On this particular day, they adore him. They would give him anything he wants today. If he decided to, to, start a, 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 to gather an army and start a war, they would have gathered and they would have fought. I mean, today they would. It's, it's today, though, but they would do it today. If he hopped off that donkey and asked them for anything, if he asked for their money, I mean, they would have given him anything t- today because they see him as the one who can save them. But, but understand, it's going to be different tomorrow. If, 
If what Jesus had come to the world for was, was just that kind of adoration, if Jesus just came for political power or popularity, then understand this is what he has on this day. He's got it all. This is the very zenith. It's the very height of his popularity and power. And it happens right here on Jerusalem from the back of a donkey on this day. But it's not going to last. Had Jesus come for this, understand, it would never last. When the world gives you the very best the world has to give you, it can never last. The world has nothing to offer you that will last. Nothing. Your money, relationships, even your marriage. I mean, you understand, I know how much you love your wife. I know how much you love your husband. But don't you remember what you promised till death do us part? I mean, the world has nothing to offer you that lasts. Nothing. Y'all know my brother-in-law, Tommy Newton? Now, now you don't know him from, from before he was an important journalist, uh, a member of the media, you know, uh, enjoying the savor of power and influence, you know, with, with all of that. But before he was a journalist, y'all, he was just like a, a bumpkin from Breckenridge County. Uh, so you got to remember that Tommy's always about half bumpkin even now. But, uh, but one day... Tommy was writing a story on the anniversary of the Corvette plant. And so, kind of as a favor to the journalist, you know, writing the story, they let Tommy Newton drive a convertible Corvette for a day. Tommy Newton, convertible Corvette for a day. Now, what do y'all think Tommy did? Y'all know Tommy? What do you think he did? He took off work. Tommy took off work just to drive around. And it was a beautiful day, y'all. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. Tommy grew his hair out just so they could flap in the breeze. Driving around with the top down, y'all. He put on his skinny pants. He took his shirt off. He bought sunglasses. And he just drove around. He drove past all of our houses and just waved. Yeah, true story, y'all. I mean, all day long, he was living large. He just drove around. I do the same thing. Wore sunglasses, just waving past everybody's house. It happened to be a Wednesday. Tommy came in for Wednesday night church in a convertible Corvette. He double parked it in the parking lot because that's what you do when you have a Corvette. He double parked it and just leaned up against it while we all came to church. <laughs> Sitting out there just, you know, waving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from cornbread to Corvette in one day. I mean, it, it, it was just <laughs> intoxicating for him. Just waving as we all came into church. At the end of prayer meeting, y'all, he went out to start it. He forgot how to start it. He couldn't start it. Like, he'd been driving it all, you know, all day long. But then, it, you know, at the end of the day when everybody's looking, like he couldn't start it. He had to call GM to come pick it up. Yeah. He's back in that old white car, y'all, ever, ever since. It was an awesome day for Tommy. I mean, there aren't that many sports car days in most of our lives where the sun shines perfectly. There just aren't that many days when you can lean up against something awesome and have the admiration of everybody that sees you. There just aren't that many days for your skinny pants and shirtless, you know, and your sunglasses. But that's the point. Days like that don't last. And this day for Jesus, it's not going to last. It doesn't last because adoring crowds are fickle. 
It doesn't last because people like you and me, we change pretty quickly. We, we, we turn on you pretty quickly. I mean, the point is the, the, the parade is going to attract a lot of people. On this particular day, there's a parade. Jesus comes into town in, in a parade and people gather and they get caught up in that. They begin to sing and shout Hosanna in the highest. And they, they take off their jackets and throw them on the ground. And they, they, they cut branches from trees and they wave branches. I mean, it's amazing procession. And a lot of people are drawn to that. The parade's going to attract people, but only the cross will save them. But by the time Jesus gets to the cross, that crowd's going to be dispersed. They won't follow him to the cross. Palm Sunday, we call it, because of Matthew chapter 21. I wonder, what would you have done if you were in the crowd that day? What would you have done if you were in this crowd on, on this day? When Jesus comes into town, what would you have done? My hunch is you would probably have responded on that Sunday just like you respond today on, on this Sunday. You, you do the same thing. When the crowd stands and sings, you'd stand and, and sing. And, and, and honestly, when everybody in the house is praising Jesus and singing about Jesus, you praise and you sing about Jesus. I mean, it's, it's almost something you don't even have to think about. You, you get caught up in that. It, it's why we're here. It's what parades are for. You understand? And so if you'd have been there, you probably would have done the very same thing. You would have praised him. You would have waved your arms. You would have shouted Hosanna. You would have loved Jesus on this day because on this day, everybody loved Jesus. But the question is, what would you have done on the next day and the next day and the next day? What would you have done as the crowd started to thin itself out? What would you have done as you start to realize that Jesus didn't necessarily come to meet all your expectations? What would you do when you realize that the salvation Jesus brings to you requires an entire surrender of yourself to him? What would you do when you realize that joining this parade means you begin in Jerusalem, but you end at Calvary at the cross? What would you do when you realize that, that to praise and love Jesus means you must pick up your own cross and follow him? What would you do when the praise somehow dissolves and the road opens up to suffering? What would you do then? Well, probably more or less what you're doing now. It's easy to say Jesus' name at church when his name pops up in every other song. It's, it's easy to talk about Jesus. It's easy to pray when someone says, everyone bow your heads. I mean, it's easy then. What do you do, though, when there's no crowd? What will you do tomorrow when following Jesus requires you to make some choices about the words you say, about the things you do, about the habits that you continue to indulge? What do you do when the path of following Jesus begins to require something from you? We all have lots of things we wish Jesus would do for us. And on this particular day, the crowd's wrapped up in what they're hoping Jesus will do for them. But as it turns out, what Jesus wants to do is, is, is deeper than they ever wanted to go with him. And he's asking them to follow further than they ever intended to go. And so before long, Jesus is on a lonely walk to Calvary. It's one thing to follow Jesus when the crowd shouts, Hosanna. 
It's another thing to follow him when the crowd shouts, crucify. So, the question for you to consider today is, are you just a part of the crowd? Are you one of those people that follows Jesus when everybody else seems to follow Jesus, but when the crowd turns away, are you one of those disciples of Jesus that just disappears? Your, your commitment, how deep is it? How reliable is it? You're, you're, you're in the house for Jesus today. Will you be following him tomorrow, the next day? Will you follow him all the way to Friday? Will you follow him when following requires you to take up your own cross? Had Jesus come just for praise and adoration of the people? Well, he got it today, but he won't have it for long. The point is most of us just don't praise and adore anything for long. We move on to something else, something new, something shiny, something that promises to do for us what we want done for us. I'm just wondering at what point you don't consider making a real commitment to Jesus. I mean, something beyond just your Sunday morning, something beyond just maybe hoping that you'll have a God who will answer all your prayers, something beyond just hoping to have a a God who's there to to bless your life in all the ways you want to be blessed. I'm just wondering at what point you don't consider actually surrendering your life and following him all the way to the cross. Uh, Understand. Lots and lots of people on this day say Jesus' name, and they wave and they sing and they shout to him. But that doesn't make them his followers. And just because they shouted, save us, save us, save us, it does not mean that he became their savior. Jesus says, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven asking you today to look at your own heart, look at your own life. Examine what you call your commitment to Jesus. How far will it take you? How long will it last? Pray with me. Lord, so many of us can remember a a time when we were so sold out for you. Maybe it's when we were teenagers coming back from camp and we were on such a mountaintop experience and we promised you that we would follow you and we made such amazing declarations about our intentions to love you forever. But for us, Lord, forever never means forever. Lord, we have made promises to you that we would, that we would teach our children to, to, to follow you, Lord, that we would raise our kids in church. We've made promises that we would, we would pray with our spouses, or we have made promises, Lord, to you. We promise to be missionaries. We have promised, Lord, to give and to serve and to sacrifice, Lord. But for us, we somehow never seem to follow through on our words, just words. Lord, your word tells us that on that day they cut branches off of trees. Lord, we know what happens when you cut a branch off a tree. It it wilts. It it falls. It collapses. It dies. 
Lord, I pray that our praise of you in this house is going to not be like a branch, Lord, that's broken off of a tree. It's green today, but dead tomorrow, Lord. I pray that our faith doesn't fizzle or fail or flop like that. Lord Jesus, help us to understand what commitment is. Help us to understand what it means to be saved by you. Help us to know what it is that you've come to do for us, the kind of change you want to work inside of us. Help us, Lord, to count the cost and follow you. When the crowd is with us, when the crowd falls away, though none go with me, Lord, still I will follow you. Even though the road takes me to the cross. Lord Jesus, bring us to the cross. Help us to recognize the price you have paid for our salvation and help us to understand what salvation means. And save us, Lord Jesus. Truly save us. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.